Hey there, welcome to the Creative Classroom Podcast. I'm your host, John Spencer. I'm a former middle school teacher, current college professor, and I am passionate about seeing teachers transform their classrooms into bastions of creativity and wonder. And so on this podcast, I share ideas and strategies. I talk about what worked, but also the things that haven't worked and those mistakes that I'm still making along the way. I talk to experts who share their insights and all because I truly believe that teachers play a profound role in helping their students reach their creative potential. And that's especially true in a changing world and one that includes machine learning and AI. It's why I've done this whole series of blog posts and articles on the topic of AI. Um, I wrote the book, The AI Roadmap, that was out last fall. And uh, I'm passionate about this idea of a human-centered, creative approach that we can use with students as they you know, go into a very unpredictable world. And so today's podcast episode is, is really all about that particular idea. And I don't have any guests. It's just me talking and sharing some insights. I am not alone in my office right now. I have my colleague, um, Zeus, who is um, not human. He's a Great Dane, and um, you will sometimes hear him playing in the background. You'll notice I avoid words like W-A-L-K because he, of course, is always here with me. If you ever hear a jingle sound in the background, that's often him. But without further ado, I want to answer the question... When should students use AI? So right now we're having this sort of big cultural moment and it's been going around for, well, about a year and a half, almost two years, right? Where we are recognizing the power of generative AI. And we've been seeing it for a long time. You know, we're, we're seeing things like ChatGPT, um, Bard, all the different Microsoft ones. Uh, a lot of schools right now are using Curipod and um, Conmigo and Magic School and all these different things. We have these amazing, you know, AI-generated uh, images that we're using, um, and you're basically seeing almost everywhere right now the little, you know, magic symbols, the the little sparkles that let you know that AI is involved in whatever app you're using, and I think that's a little bit profound if you think about it. The symbols we use matter. And in this case, the symbols that we're using are that of magic. And it's because right now, AI does seem really magical. And being magical, it's magical because we don't completely understand it. It's magical because we're blown away by what it can do. But also it's magical because, well, some of us feel like it might be dark magic. And we don't know what it's going to do in terms of the negative ramifications. But in general, the response from schools has been one of two different dead ends. The first has been the technophile, techno-futurism approach. And this is the concept that um, we are going to embrace AI. We're going to start with the question, what can AI do that humans can't do, and we're going to let AI do all of those things. So if AI can do it, we don't need to learn how to do it. Let's just focus on everything else. And I think that misses some of the value of vintage tools, best practices, old school approaches, some things that are traditional. I think traditional is not a bad thing. 
It's not a bad word, right? Um, and it misses some of those deeply human things that we need to be doing. You know, true, AI can generate images, but we still need to make art because making art is part of what it means to be human. The second side, though, that we need to look out for is the lock it and block it approach. And this is the, the notion of let's just completely block all AI tools. Let's pretend it doesn't exist. Let's keep ChatGPT off the network. Let's try to catch anyone cheating. Let's you know do blue um, books in, in all of the college classes and have students write all their essays in person by paper and, and pencil. And the problem there is when that happens, we miss out on some of the positive aspects of AI, some of the power of AI, and students don't ever get a chance to see what it means to use AI wisely. But there is a third approach, and this third approach is the blended approach. This is the overlap of AI and the human voice. And uh, one of my favorite examples of this is if we think about chess. In, in competitive ch chess, AI will nearly always beat the human. But when you do chess via teams, the fully AI teams rarely win. Neither do the all human teams. The winning teams are nearly always a combination of AI and human. If you get a chess master and she uses an AI, she will almost always beat an AI alone. And if that's true in a closed system like chess, how much more true will that be in a complicated, complex world where the systems are constantly changing? What I want you to think for a moment about a programmer. She might outsource the easier code to AI and then focus on the most challenging programming herself. Or she might double check her work with AI. She might ask for the AI to give her some help with questions or ideas, or she might use it as a thought partner to help her reflect on her learning. She might even start with the AI code and then edit it to make it more efficient or to improve it. She might take the initial code and move it in an entirely different direction. And that's just one small example. But what does this mean for K-12 institutions? How do we define acceptable use given these constant changes? I don't have any clear-cut, easy answers. But what I do offer are seven different areas that I would like you to consider. Number one, start with the learning targets. Over the last year and a half, I've had the chance to deliver all kinds of keynotes and workshops that are about this topic of AI and education. And one of the questions I get asked most often is, when is it okay for students to use AI? Often the goal here is to nail down a specific school-wide policy that every teacher can adhere to. Some schools have even develop, developed a, a table or a chart where on one side they have acceptable help and then on the other side they have the unacceptable help in terms of AI usage. And I personally love these charts. I think they add clarity and intentionality. I think they're a great visual to use. But I wonder if it might work best to use that type of chart on an individual assignment or, or during a project rather than as a singular school-wide policy. 
And here's why. In the long run, we want students to learn how to use AI ethically and wisely, but this requires students to think critically about the context of the tasks at hand. If you're teaching a coding class, the, you, you might want to be tight with students on the use of generative AI, but then when it comes to something like a health class where it's less important for them to know how to code, you might not care if they use generative AI for coding. Like you might be having them do a health campaign based on healthy habits. And um, as a result, you're going to have them design their own apps, right? So health-related apps. And you might focus on the health standards that you're teaching, but you don't care if they use AI to actually write the app for them. That's not the goal. The app is simply how they're going to demonstrate their understanding. Or consider something like an art class. In an art class, you might not want students to use AI-generated gen images at all, right? You might say, I want it all to be done by hand. But if you're teaching a history class and students are making in infographics, you might want them to use AI-generated images inside of their you know, infogra uh, infograph. So again, like the context makes a huge difference, right? It, it might feel like, cheating for a student in a film class to use AI for video editing, but the AI-generated jump cuts can save loads of time in a science class where students are demonstrating their learning in a video. In a film class, it's critical for students to learn how to edit by hand to tell a story, but in science, those AI-generated jump cuts allow students to create videos quickly so they can focus on the science content. And by the way, this is not new. Technology has always helped us save time and money in doing creative work. I'm going to give you an example. When I was an eighth grader, I made a slide presentation. And to make a slide presentation, I had to find all the pictures in books and magazines, take pictures of those pictures with a camera, take that film to Thrifty's drugstore, and get my slides for the carousel. I don't miss this process. Okay, I do miss those uh, like cylinder ice cream scoops from Thrifties. I mean, that thing was amazing. It was a big, big thing in California. I know I probably lost half my audience, more than half my audience here. But um, now I make slides using paper, pens, Apple Pencil, Photoshop. It's way easier and even faster for me. I'll and that right there is the beauty of technology. It saves us time and money. It makes things more feasible. We're able to do things in a quicker way. But the danger of automation in any area is that it can do so much of the work that you miss out on the learning. This is why it's still vital for students to take notes by hand or do prototyping with duct tape and cardboard. Those moments are still vital, not for the end result or for saving time, but for the learning process itself. For this reason, my first AI question I always ask is, what is the learning outcome and how does AI fit within that? If my goal is for students to write original code, I might say we will use AI to give feedback on the code, or we will use it to create exemplars, or we will use it to help problem solve when your code isn't working, but we will not use it to generate the initial code. 
If I'm teaching a history lesson, I might want students to use AI as a question and answer tool to build background knowledge. But if I'm teaching a history mystery lesson where students have to make predictions and test their answers, I might go entirely tech-free altogether because what I want is confusion and productive struggle. So if that's the case, if we think about that as the big baseline thing, then we need to design AI policies that allow for flexibility, although at the same time being universal. So a couple core ideas we might do, you know, give educators leeway in how they use AI, uh, research how AI is used in different disciplines and domains and industries, uh, make sure educators give clear expectations to students on how they can or cannot use AI in an assignment, you know, require students to share when and how they use AI. And I share this because um, I'm on a committee right now at our university um, where we are creating the code, or sorry, the policy for AI, and this is gonna go into the syllabi. And our goal has been to create something that is flexible enough, but also universal. And it's been a challenge. So the second idea is to be cognizant of the policies in regulations. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time here, but you need to make sure that whatever AI tools you use, they follow the policies where you live. So it could be FERPA, making sure that you're not accidentally putting student data like IEP goals, for example, into the AI to generate something new. Like that becomes really important that you protect student data. Um, Children Online Protection of uh, Privacy Protection Act or COPPA, and that has this rule about you know not using apps that are below the age limit. And so that becomes really important that students aren't using, you know, uh, a tool at ten that by its terms of services says you have to be 14 or older. Um, SIPA, which is um, something that allows, um, you know, internet, but it has to be filtered and, and blocked and vetted. And so that would be the notion of making sure that students are using AI tools that at the same time follow the community standards that you've set up. Which leads to the fourth idea, the, the fourth policy, um, district policies, this is going to be your acceptable use policy as a district. And whatever that district policy is, you will, as, as an educator, will need to follow it. Um, you also need to make sure that whatever you know, tools you're using, that they are ADA compliant, um, Section 508 of the Rehabilitation Act as well, uh, making sure that you're following 504 plans. So all of those things in mind, that's the third, the second concept, sorry, which is be cognizant of the policies and regulations. Make sure that you are using tools that actually follow these policies. The third thing to consider is to bring students into the conversation. So I did a, a um, podcast episode in the past with Ben Farrell. It's a great episode. Please go back and check it out. And what I loved about it is instead of setting a policy for the students, he brought students into the conversation and ask them to help craft a policy together for the entire school. And what that does is it's empowering for the students. It says, we care about you, we're listening to you. 
it builds buy-in from them and it allows them to actually you know, pay closer attention to when it is right or wrong to use AI. You can also have Socratic seminars with, um, you know, anchor texts. I personally would, you know, if I taught high school English, for example, the great automatic grammatizer by Roald Dahl is a great anchor text about automation, art, AI, commerce, those things. And so it would be a powerful, you know, starting place for a conversation that students have where they will engage in that Socratic dialogue. The fourth thing to consider is human development and age appropriateness. So I love this book from Neil Postman called The Disappearance of Childhood. And in it, Postman argued that the rise of electronic media, especially television, had eroded the boundaries between childhood and adulthood. And as children became increasingly exposed to this adult content, they became less kid-like, right? So we argued that actually... Literacy is what led to our current definition of childhood. It's a fascinating concept. Some social critics disagree, and that's fine. I want to be clear. He was not ideologically conservative or liberal here. It was about being developmentally appropriate. So I want to be clear. It's, this is not the same thing as book banning and stuff like that. And I think that's important because in a world of AI, it's important that we say, is this age appropriate? Is this developmentally appropriate? I personally think that, you know, AI software with adaptive learning where, you know, they're going to give you the exact content you need to learn reading at your grade level, I think that's a horrible way for a first grader, second grader, third grader to work. I, I just think that being in front of a computer, doing leveled readers, using AI, not good. So I'm not a fan of using a lot of AI tools at a younger age. But I also think it's important that if we do use some of those tools, we ask, how has this data trained? And was it trained on age-appropriate data? If we think about something like AI tutors, we need to know exactly how the tools adapts to the developmental needs of students. If you hired a human tutor, you would ask them, what experience do you have working with kids who are 10 years old, for example? The same is true of AI tutors. As educators, we need to ask how the machine learning algorithms have been trained to engage with various age levels. And if that's not the case, we need to be very cognizant of that. If you go back to the interview I did with Sal Khan, I love the way he answered that and talked through how exactly had Conmigo been trained on student data, uh, age-appropriate information. Um, how did we put in? You know, they, how did they put in guardrails for it? You know, how did they make sure that the answers would be, you know, age-appropriate um, and not inappropriate things like that? And so, it's really important that we ask: How does this align with our knowledge of human development and age-appropriateness? The fifth thing I, I want you to consider is how can we focus on trust and transparency? So this is the notion that as students use AI, we want them to focus on showing their work, right? So timestamps in a shared document, um, starting with AI-generated text, and then they color code it with their own 
words and you can visually see how they've modified the text to be their own. Um, if they've used it to build background knowledge before doing research, just have them send their chat showing the questions they asked, the answers they got, things like that. And I think it's really important that we avoid things like AI detection software. The downside of AI detection software is, you know, if you have a 90% accuracy rate, then in a class of, you know, 20 students, you might have two kids who just got falsely accused of cheating. And that becomes a real problem. I give the example in the blog post that goes with this that a 94% accuracy rate sounds great, but if you have a semester with multiple students submitting five essays apiece, you could easily have 54 students falsely accused of cheating. That becomes really problematic. So our approach needs to be show me how you are using AI. The sixth idea is that we need to model the process for students. They need to see how it works. Um, one of my favorite examples of this is to walk students through the fact, facts prompt engineering cycle. So F-A-C-T-S. It's an engineering cycle that I created. Um, there's a link to the blog post and the podcast if you're interested on this topic. The facts engineering cycle, uh, prompt engineering cycle. Um, we can also integrate it into writing assignments, into project-based learning. And what we're doing is we're modeling for students what does the appropriate use of AI actually look like. And then finally, number seven, emphasize the human element. So the human element is the concept that you are going to start with, what do we as humans do well? What does AI do well? And how do we amplify those pieces? So the, the, the idea here is that in the future, our students will need to become really good at what AI can't do and really different with what AI can do. So what AI cannot do, empathy, contextual understanding, curiosity, and then being different from what AI can do is divergent thinking, individual voice. So what we can do is we can actually rewrite things like our writing prompts where we say, let's start with this writing prompt and rewrite it to focus on empathy, context, curiosity, divergent thinking, and voice or personal perspective. And I did this recently with the Oregon Writing Project. We had a blast. We rewrote all of these writing prompts. And the goal, I want to be clear, was not to AI-proof the writing prompts. It was rather to focus on a writing prompt that requires students to bring in those deeply human skills that they will need in life. In the end, it gets down to this. We need to ask, what do we want our students to know when they leave our institutions? Who do we want them to be? And then ask the question, how does AI fit into this? It's never going to be perfect. And we're going to need to modify these things as we go. But if we keep the human element at the forefront, then we'll be well on our way to using AI wisely. Hey there, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Would you do me a favor? 
If you enjoy this podcast, would you leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or App, you know, uh, what Amazon maybe? Wherever it is that you get your podcast, wherever you're listening to it. And would you also click the little subscribe button? So again, review and subscribe to this podcast. And one last thing, um, telling someone about it is one of the best ways. So word of mouth would be another way to support this podcast. Again, thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful day and go out and make something awesome.